This is One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Coverline. Science is cool, but how do we get the story out about what scientists do, what they discover, and why it's important? On our show today is Dr. Pamela Gay, astronomer, podcaster, and director of CosmoQuest. And she's going to talk to us about the public engagement of science. So we hear this term, public engagement of science, and I know one of the impressions is it's kind of the, the duty that you have to do. It's not really <laughs> science. Well, so so there's two sides to, to the whole public engagement in science. There's the side of what the scientists are doing, and there's the side of what the, the public is hopefully doing. And a lot of us professional scientists do start out with the, well, well, how do I do this? Is it a waste of my time? Is, is it actually going to lead to anything meaningful? But the reality is, to the public, it's a way to fulfill that childhood dream of reaching for the stars and exploring the unknown. And given the opportunity, these people will spend their spare time, their spare brain cells, and sometimes their spare money as well, just to help us understand our universe. In your aspect, a lot of what you're doing with CosmoQuest is this citizen science, the idea of engaging people and actually participating in scientific research. Is that kind of like the main area of public engagement? Do you think that's kind of the strongest area? I, I think that's the, the culminating point that we all aim for. At, at the end of the day, public engagement in science is sort of what we do at the university, but writ large across the entire population of our society. On, on one hand, you want to make sure everyone has that broad liberal education where they understand what's a planet and why is Pluto not one. We, we want people to understand there are stars that include our sun and they trace out galaxies that trace out an entire universe of, of structure that we have the capacity to understand through science. And just getting people to understand that the awesomeness of science isn't that it allows us to live a bit longer, that's certainly awesome, but the fact that science allows us to understand where we came from and where we're going. Science gets at the fundamental questions that everyone has as a child and in their old age. With public engagement of science, though, we can move from that broad education that we want to give all of our students and move into the sucking people into what we do, again, like we try and do with our best students. So now we're broadly trying to educate the entire public, but those who are extra curious, those who are extra eager to get involved, well, we don't have enough hands in science. We don't have enough funding to have enough hands helping us take on our data and figure out what is out there to be learned. While we may not have enough students and peers, if we can engage the public, maybe we can understand things that we didn't understand yesterday. So it sounds like uh, a lot of the effort would be in terms of getting buy-in. In other words, if people are actually engaged in something, then, then they're going to be more supportive of that as a whole. An alternative approach to it would be, let me tell you what we do. 
and you can sit there and, and listen to me lecture to you. And that sounds like something you're doing in very much the opposite approach in terms of engaging people and actually participating. It's a way of turning the model on its head. Now, you do have to start with, let me tell you what I do and let me show you how awesome it is. And once I see those eyes go wide, it's like, so, you know, you can come join me in this if you want. And, and so it's that dangling the bait of amazing things out in front of them and dangling it as a lure to say, come in here, let me introduce you to my data and asking them to help in reducing the data in, in a lot of cases, doing the grunt work that we have trouble getting our students to do if we assign it as homework. Once you get people to understand that these things we're doing, they have value. We're, we're currently working on a project to map out features in a couple of different areas on Mars. One of the science problems we're trying to solve is how recently did Mars have active volcanoes, which is kind of cool. The other problem that we're working to try and figure out is where is the surface of Mars eroding the fastest as wind and dunes and storms cut away at the surface features? because these quickly eroding areas are, are the areas where signs of past life are most likely to get revealed at the surface. And that is entirely cool in a completely different way. And so we explain the science, and then we say, won't you come help? Right, and a lot of it is we gather so much data, and, and it can't be processed by computers. I think some people would think that, well, you just put all this data into a computer and it'll find where all the craters are, or it'll find all those things. And I think they don't realize how much of it still has to be done by hand. And, and this is very much a, a problem that we wish we could solve and, and we can't. Anyone who's ever used Google Image Search knows that it's good, but there are some bizarre things that occur, or Apple Photos is another great example. I've, I've had software uh, say that me and Natalie Portman look the same and labeled <laughs> us both as the same person. And while I wish I looked like Natalie Portman, I, I don't. Well, and she's played an astrophysicist in the movie. She, she has played an <laughs> astrophysicist, that's true. Computer vision is something that's still being developed. And when it comes to trying to understand astronomical images, the software is, is in a difficult place. It's challenged if you're doing something as simple as trying to map out craters on a rocky surface. It's challenged by differences in soil color. It's challenged by the changing position of the sun that causes the shadows to vary. It's challenged by the texture of the dirt, all of these different things. Our human brain is like, okay, yeah, the sun moved. We know how to deal with that. Or, oh yeah, this area, the, the soil's a little bit darker as it cuts across. We can see this in our wetware, our human programming knows how to deal with all these differences. And we haven't fully figured out how to get computer software to do the same thing. So do you think this is just a matter of time until computers take over, or do you think this really needs to be an integral part of science simply for the engagement of people? I think that engaging people in tasks that we can have computers do instead is wasting people. There are so many things out there that require the human brain that 
if we're going to engage the public, we need to make it meaningful and not make it busy work. All of us as children had those homework assignments we deeply resented because they didn't teach us anything and they were clearly designed just to make us jump through hoops for reasons that not even our teachers necessarily understood. I, I don't think that kind of public engagement in science really serves a purpose. But there are problems that until we can solve them with software, we need to engage people. And I think as we continue to get more and more data from more and more spacecraft with new rovers and probes constantly under development, we're always going to have this learning curve. And, and right now, the learning curve isn't so much with the people as it is with the software. We're working on, on mapping out the moon, which is actually kind of awesome because teams for the Google Lunar X Prize Challenge are hopefully going to be landing there in the next couple of years. And they're going to need highly detailed maps to figure out the sites that they're going to go and explore. Now, right now, the best software out there can map things out with about 80% accuracy. And if you're landing a multi-million dollar space probe, you probably want better than 80% accuracy on the map you're relying on to keep your spacecraft safe. Right. Human beings, we work at closer to 98% accuracy and our mistakes come from exhaustion and the occasional interruption by the, well, cat or child or whatever. But if you get multiple humans to work over the same images, we can get to that 100% level of accuracy. We recognize the moon is big, and we're currently trying to map out features that are the size of maybe a bedroom. And when you try and map out features that small across something as large as the moon, you realize it will take many lifetimes. So we're working to train algorithms by getting a myriad of maps made by the public. And with all of these different people being engaged, we start to see, well, if you have this kind of surface, you have this kind of mistakes that get made, but here's what accuracy looks like. Right. And this diversity of humans being involved in the process is allowing us to slowly get our trained algorithms, our neural networks working at 95, 98, and creeping towards that elusive 100% accuracy. So it's not just that you're, you're doing this work to just map things out, you're actually training software. And this is our ultimate goal, is to work towards this human-computer hybrid way of doing science where the humans need to always be out there, well, training our robot overlords. And from there, we are able to rely on the computers to do things faster, but with that human level of accuracy. I think it's what's interesting is you talk about mapping the moon, and I think a lot of people would say, what do you mean mapping the moon? We already have high images. We've got tons of images of the moon. This, we, it's the closest object beyond Earth. How do we not already have this completely mapped? It, it is one of those things that does really perplex people. But the, the truth is that we didn't have high-resolution images of the entire moon until very recently. It was only in 2009 that the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter was launched, and that little spacecraft, as it continues to orbit, is taking images that each pixel is about a half a meter of the moon's surface 
in that pixel. This means that if your standard adult was to lay down and assume the snow angel position on the surface of the moon, they'd be about two pixels wide and four pixels long. And that starts to mean that you can see human beings on the moon. Well, we don't currently have humans on the moon, right. but what we are seeing is the spacecraft that were left behind, the differences in soil color where the astronauts' footprints disrupted the lighter colored surface material. And with these higher resolution images, we're suddenly able to go from mapping out features that are one or two kilometers across to mapping out features that are potentially one or two meters across. Mm -hmm. Well, one meter starts to be only two pixels. Can't really go, go and do that. Right. But as we get smaller and smaller, the number of things that we need to map out goes from thousands to millions. And right. we haven't had time since 2009 to map out millions of little circles on the moon. I'm Brian Koberlein, you're listening to One Universe at a Time, and we're talking with Pamela Gay about the public engagement of science. So when you talk about engaging the general public, I think one of the criticisms that might come up is, you know, we're, we're trained scientists, we know what we're doing, and you're going to hire people off the street and volunteer them to do this very technical stuff. How do you know your data isn't complete junk? <laughs> Well, we, we have to remember that, that you and I, while we now have PhDs, we started out as dumb teenagers. We were once noobs. <laughs> <laughs> we were. And we have to take the time to train the public the same way, once upon a time, someone took the time to train us. And a lot of the most time-consuming parts of doing science are tasks that I wish I had enough undergrads to give those tasks to my students, but I don't. But the public, the noobs, they're just as good as those 18 and 19 year olds I might hire. And a lot of times they're a lot better because they're not quite as distracted. So you do have to train the public, but you do, once you've trained them, have to, just like you do with your students, check the quality of the data. Mm -hmm. Just like I've had students where it's like, nope, you have to go home and do this all over again. Sorry. Uh, there are times that I look at the data that come in from a member of the public and it's just sort of like, nope, okay, sorry, you need to redo this, go home, try again. And so we do do that level of checking with our data. Mm -hmm. And what we actually found is we get better results by combining results from multiple members of the public than we would get from a single professional. We, we did a first of its kind study, and this was led by Stuart Robbins, who's out at the University of Colorado in LASP. And, and the study that he led asked eight professional planetary scientists, some of whom had more experience counting craters than I have years of life. People who've been working since Apollo on mapping out the moon. They went through, used the software of their choice, and mapped out a fairly large region of the moon. We then took that exact same region, cut it up into a bunch of desktop-sized pieces of lunar surface, and said, take this image and map it using the software we have at CosmoQuest. And we also asked two of the pros to replicate the results with our software. What we found was there was about a 30% variance between the pros in terms of the highest counts and the lowest counts. And when we're using 
crater maps of the moon. We don't just use them to figure out where we should land spacecraft and where are the holes that we need to count as hazards. We also use this data to figure out how old are different surfaces on the moon. An area that has a whole bunch of craters, it's been there for a long time and steadily been rained down upon by, well, falling rocks. An area that's nice and smooth, probably had a lava flow, or got wiped out by one really large impact that just smoothed out that region. Well, with these crater counts, we have models that allow us to say this many craters means this age and this many mm. craters means this other age and that 30% variation can lead to a billion year age difference between how two different people see the exact same region. 5% of the universe basically in terms of its age. And one-fifth the age of the moon. Right. Actually it's a little worse than that. Yeah. But when we average together those various professors and postdocs and other researchers. What we found was the researchers who used our CosmoQuest software, their results went right down the middle of that average line. So we know that our software isn't adding in any biases. And then when we compared the results of those eight professionals to all the groups of 15 everyday people that each took on one small part of that large region, we found that there is a one-to-one correlation in how many craters they counted at different sizes. This means that we could have used either population's results to get at the same age for that surface, to get at the same scientific results. Now, with one of those researchers, we know our software chews along mapping things out at about the same rate that that one researcher would do it. But I have a choice. I can either pay a professional researcher to spend hour after hour after hour marking circles on the moon, or I can ask the public to look at some of the most amazing, most high resolution, most scientifically revealing images we've ever taken of the moon, and say, will you be part of the scientific process? And this frees up my scientists to spend their time focused on analysis, focused on transforming these crater counts, these crater maps, into new understanding. It works for everyone. One of the most heartbreaking and joyous things that I read was a message from one of our, our community members saying, I've been unemployed, and doing this gives my days meaning. People yeah. find purpose in this. They can see the results of what they're doing because the, the results are published and you, you have these new findings and then people can say that I, I'm a part of this in small way. It's amazing to say to people, what you're doing is helping us figure out where we're gonna land the Mars 2020 rover. Come map the, the moon, come map Mars, come take a look at Vesta and Mercury. We're making right. a difference. I think everybody who wants to do science, they, they can do science. I think that's the other thing that is kind of a common misconception is that these people aren't really doing science. They're, they're doing part of science, a necessary part. It's the grunt work part. It's the right. unsexy sit at, your, sit at your keyboard and click and click and click. But when I was an undergraduate, part of doing research was typing in hundreds of years of data on variable stars so that I could reanalyze it. Right. Until all of that was typed in, I couldn't get at new results. This is a necessary stage. 
This is One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Carberline, and we're talking with Pamela Gay about the public engagement of science. You're an astronomer, and you're doing this uh, work in astronomy. And I know some people may be interested in science, but they're more interested in biology or birds or chemistry or something. And are there things other than astronomy areas where people are doing these projects? Well, well, the unfortunate truth is that every scientific field has tasks that someone has to sit down and do that are highly time consuming. And the public can do them just as well as the scientists. And since we don't have enough science funding, uh, we need to ask the public. So this lack of funding for science actually leads to a lot of opportunity for everyday people to engage in a myriad of different ways. There is a, a project to look at pictures of whale tails and mark out the patterns on the flukes to help determine what are migration patterns, what is the family and pod clustering of whales over time. There are projects to listen to oceans to, well, catch the whale song. Uh, I clearly like whales. There, there are projects to look at the distribution of bees across the country by having people plant cornflowers and just sit and watch to see what comes up. There are projects to study how old graveyards have stones that are eroding under the effects of acid rain. And just by looking to see how rounded the edges of a headstone are, you can see, well, unfortunately, this person died in, well, whatever year. And now I can see how much the stone has eroded. And that helps me understand our Earth's climate. All of these different projects that engage people in either taking data by looking at the world around them or looking at data in a computer interface, they all are helping some researcher who otherwise couldn't make their discoveries advance science. And most of these projects are listed at this great site called SciStarter, S-C-I-Starter.com. it's someplace that lets you find out simple things like the fact that cats are serial killers limits how many gray squirrels there are in the suburbs. Right, right. So there's all these unexpected findings. So if there's an a area of science that you're interested in, you can go to SciStarter and, and there's probably a project for you. There, there's definitely a project for you. I, I wouldn't say probably okay. anymore. And and. They're out there. If you want to go hiking, you can find ways to do science. If you just want to sit on your sofa and ignore whatever your significant other is watching on TV, there are projects for you as well. Uh, instead of going to BuzzFeed, and I admit I go to BuzzFeed a lot. I'm guilty of it. <laughs> uh, instead of going to BuzzFeed, go to SciStarter and instead of wasting your time learning about 16 ways that Tumblr best represented, I don't know, Hogwarts, learn about <laughs> 16 ways that you can help us map our solar system or map our oceans or understand the history of humankind. Right. And I know that there are uh, lots of projects also that are targeted towards children, not just adults. And so if you have a child that's interested in science, there are projects they can do that are contributing to these larger projects. 
That that's exactly right. And some of them are great ways to get your entire family doing science. There are projects like Bud Burst where you go out and you look for the first flowers of spring and as we move into winter here in the northern hemisphere, that seems like an awful long way off, but mm-hmm. it's something to look forward to doing with your entire family and you can measure rainfall in backyard weather stations and help us understand our climate and an entire family can work together and it's a great way to be engaged with your kids. And I think there's also um, a lot of the more computer-based stuff. I I know some people are using cell phones to measure barometric pressure or um, using donating computer time to process you know signals that could be from aliens in outer space and stuff. There, there are actually hundreds of programs now that use the software called Boink that was developed out at Berkeley to do the SETI at home screensaver that many of us installed in the 80s and 90s. And nowadays, that Boink software isn't just being used to process radio signals to look for signs of alien intelligence, it's also getting used to understand data coming from particle accelerators, from climate models, from things, there's there's a project called Einstein at Home that works to do relativistic work. Mm -hmm. So you can donate your cycles on your computer and you can donate the cycles of your own mind. There are many different ways to be engaged. Right, and I know some of them, are are some of them in terms of games and stuff now? I think there was one with protein folding. Folded at home. Folded at home. So so Folded is a very gamified project. It treats protein folding very much like a puzzle. And people are challenged to see how many proteins they can figure out how to recreate and how quickly and, and it it's a way of getting points. It's it's beautifully gamified. I have to admit our own project, CosmoQuest, uh, we haven't quite figured out how to gamify surface mapping the way they've figured out how to gamify proteins. And it's a beautifully well done project. So do you think this is kind of opening up into kind of a golden age of science? Is this kind of transformative? I uh, think it is leading to a golden age in making science an every every man opportunity. There have always been so-called everyday people engaged in science. William Herschel, who discovered the planet Uranus, was a composer, an oboist. He conducted the orchestra in the city in England that he was living in and then went home to build telescopes in his spare time, which is something people still do today. Except when he was doing it, we didn't have multimeter professional (laughs) instruments and it turned out the telescopes that he was building were some of the best in the world at the time, just this hobbyist, this musician. And so he was able to discover not just Uranus, but working with his little sister Caroline, they discovered thousands of nebula and comets and moons of Saturn. And they were just musicians. She was a singer. There, there have always been these everyday people, but they've usually been wealthy or affluent, and they've always, until the last century, been one-off. Mm-hmm. 
the the modern idea of of engaging as many people as possible has its roots in the weather in the U.S. Uh, meteorologic data, where back in the Revolutionary War. Uh, People like Jefferson and Franklin began to engage farmers in writing down barometric pressures and sky conditions. That was the start of large-scale engagement, but it was really in the early 1900s that the American Association of Variable Star Observers broadly engaged the public in going outside and monitoring stars to see how they changed in brightness over time. And that, just like the weather data systems, continues on to today. Now we're reaching the point that anyone who has a cellular device can contribute meaningfully to a myriad of different projects. It, it's not necessarily a golden age for all of science because we are struggling in the face of a global economic turndown which has led to a turndown in scientific resources. But it is a golden age for that gentleman and gentle lady scientist to be working from home. It is a new renaissance-like period where you can have the noble mind engaged in advancing, well, a new age of enlightenment for the everyman. Right. So it sounds like we need you to participate, and that engagement is what makes science better as a human endeavor. It, it is a human endeavor. And through broad participation, we can hopefully continue to take advantage of our advancing technologies. And while faculty are, are finding it harder and harder to balance all of the teaching and service and research requirements that we face in this age of diminished resources, maybe the public can make it easier. Maybe the public can keep us able to keep striving ahead and limited resources won't actually limit what we're capable of doing because people take the time to help. We've been talking with Dr. Pamela Gay, astronomer, podcaster, and director of CosmoQuest, about the public engagement of science. Our program is produced by Mark Gillespie at the Rochester Institute of Technology with support from the RIT College of Science. I'm your host, Brian Corberline. Thanks for listening to One Universe at a Time. Thank you.